This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, December the 7th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. My goodness, I am unshaven today and my glasses are very smudgy. We'll have to deal with that at some point. Not the shaving, maybe the smudgy glasses. Coming up on the show today, Megan Gilmore has some details on the federal government's hiring program for people with disabilities. Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller reflect on International Day of Persons with Disabilities. They'll get last word on the 2022 edition of the IDPD, at least on this show. And Kevin Shaw will walk through some emerging and potential tech trends, a little media. We'll talk a little business. We'll talk a little social media. And Kevin's going to fill us in on a little bit of science about electrics and magnetics that's probably going to go over my head because I'm not very smart. But certainly, you'll understand. Let's get to our top story of the day. Just a brief mention here. The Bank of Canada will make its interest rate announcement this morning at 10 a.m. Eastern time. It's expected the bank will once again raise its key rate, and we'll share that news when it comes across the wire. No need to speculate any further. Let's get to some information that came across yesterday. Canada's Auditor General released several reports about the federal government's response to the pandemic, starting with vaccine supply. Karen Hogan's report shows that the government did a good job of acquiring vaccines, but due to the number of contracts signed with various manufacturers, that did lead to issues of wasted vaccines. They knew that that would result in um, excess vaccines or surplus vaccines being available, which is why there was a commitment to make donations. But there again, so many countries we're trying to donate and that market saturated resulting in the in the Canadian government not being as successful as they could. Hogan also released a report on the financial support programs rolled out by the government like CERB and the wage subsidy. Hogan estimates $4.6 billion was paid to people who were not eligible, while another $27.4 billion in payments to people and businesses should be further investigated. Hogan says more work needs to be done to follow up on that money. Though government organizations knew in 2020 that they would need to undertake significant post-payment work down the road, they have not adjusted their resources or plans to deal with the long-term effects of vast income support programs that were rolled out in record time. And we'll revisit that a little bit in our daily polls, but I've got a little more news for you before we get there. Let's start with some data from the Public Health Agency of Canada showing that children under five continue to make up the majority of influenza and respiratory hospitalizations in the country. The rate seniors are being admitted is on the rise, though. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Isaac Bogosh reflects on all the factors leading to this uptick. We have a bit of a perfect storm with a monster influenza season that started early and rose quickly. We have subpar influenza vaccine uptake, and we have a healthcare system that is completely stretched. 
Now, there is a positive trend coming out of the Children's Hospital in Winnipeg. Dr. Karen Grip is the medical director of the hospital's emergency department. Dr. Grip says admission numbers are down so far this month. Um, the December average to date is 146 patients per day. And for comparison, our November average was about 170 uh, patients a day. And over to Alberta, where that government says it has secured another 5 million bottles of children's medication, like children's Tylenol, to manage fever and pain. Health Minister Jason Copping hopes this should ease some stress for parents. The past few weeks have been incredibly challenging for parents, for caregivers, for healthcare professionals, and for our entire healthcare system. When our kids are sick, we will do whatever it takes to help them. And, and quite frankly, as a parent, I know how helpless you can feel when your child isn't feeling well and how you want to do everything in your power to make them feel better. And let's get to one more story about the healthcare system. Saskatchewan's Auditor General says the province is facing a chronic healthcare worker shortage. Tara Clement's report shows the province will need to fill over 2,000 healthcare worker positions by 2027. Clement says the system is not operating at full capacity. We have emergency rooms, we have lab services that are not available to the people of Saskatchewan because they don't have staff to work to deliver those services. The Saskatchewan Health Authority is planning to bring in 150 nurses from the Philippines, but the auditor found it would still leave 200 nursing positions empty next year. Clement says retaining staff is a piece of the puzzle as well. I think the focus can't just be about getting more new people into Saskatchewan. It's about retaining the current workforce that the authority has as well. The report says giving better housing and childcare options to workers could keep more staff in the province. So we've done some economy. We've done some health care. Let's turn to climate. The UN Biodiversity Conference is underway in Montreal. United Nations Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez opened the conference with some pointed remarks. With our bottomless appetite for unchecked and unequal economic growth, humanity has become a weapon of mass extinction. We are treating nature like a toilet, and ultimately we are committing suicide by proxy. You can agree or disagree with the Secretary General, but the man is a poet. There's no doubt about that. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says the world has to agree on some fundamental truths. Until we agree that we should stop species from going extinct, until we agree that our water should be clean and our air should be clean, until we agree that it matters that forests, grasslands, jungles endure, we cannot guarantee a future for our kids. The goal of protecting 30% of lands and oceans has been set by several prominent delegates, including Canada's Environment Minister. Erin Jacob of Nature Conservancy Canada says that number would be adequate. Scientists have studied this for years and years. So we know with a great deal of evidence that 30% is the lower limit. The safest bet is more like 50 or 70% protected. And so 30% is really the, the lower limit that comes up. Negotiations in Montreal begin today. And you don't need to be in Montreal to make negotiations about the climate. European Union lawmakers and governments have reached a deal banning imports of products which contribute to deforestation around the world. Charles de Ledesma explains. 
The preliminary agreement, which still needs to be formally adopted by the EU Parliament, requires companies to verify that the goods they sell in the EU have not led to deforestation and forest degradation anywhere in the world as of 2021. Companies will need to show goods they import comply with the rules in the country of origin, including on human rights and the protection of indigenous people. Forests around the world are increasingly under threat from clearance for timber and agriculture, including soybean and palm oil. I'm Charles Diladesma. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Tuesday, we asked you, will rising rates of respiratory illnesses and the flu impact how you prepare for the holiday season? 54% of you said yes and 46% of you said no. It's the AMI Christmas party today. So, uh... I think this may be one of my last hurrahs of running into the danger before we start uh, shutting things down a little bit for the holiday season so I can be nice and protective to my pops and my moms and my sister and my niece and my brother-in-law and all the people that I hope to hang out with over the holiday season. Today's Daily Poll. This uh, relates to the Auditor General's report about some money, and by some money I mean about $31 billion of money being uh, unaccounted for in terms of COVID-19 pandemic benefits. Do you want the Canada Revenue Agency to crack down on people who illegally took federal support for the pandemic? Yes or no? I mean, the answer's got to be yes on this front, right? There's a difference between somebody erroneously or erroneously took on some money they weren't eligible for. But now we're at the two-year point where perhaps your accountants or your own personal uh, tax filings would suggest... Ooh, I made a mistake. I should contact CRA and maybe try to resolve this. As opposed to saying, well, it is what it is. Because here's the thing about fraud. Even if you commit fraud unknowingly, you still committed fraud. And $31 billion, people can talk about the way in which the government printed money and gave out money willy-nilly during the pandemic. $31 billion still accounts for like, 5 to 10% of what actually went out the door, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of leakage. And $31 billion certainly needs to be followed up on. And certainly the $4.6 billion that Karen Hogan identified as certainly being given away in error or taken in error or taken in a way that was misrepresented by the person taking it. Yeah, you got to crack down on that. That's, that's what CRA's got to do. Let's stop nickel and diming people over a couple dollars in tax write-offs. Let's uh, get that $31 billion straightened out. Alex Smythe, what do you think? Yeah, Dave, uh, 100% agree. Yes, they should obviously crack down on on the billions of dollars that are, are uh, have been given out uh, why, uh, for people who have not qualified for it. Now, if we get some responses on the no side, you then have to start to question... Are these some people maybe who have gotten the funds that maybe they shouldn't have? Who knows? But uh, yeah, I, I highly expect to see a very high percentage of, of the, the vote tally in favor of yes. But um, it, it's one of those things with, with this program, you, you kind of understand. It's like, okay, well, they wanted to get the money out the door as quickly as possible. Yes, we were all aware that there was not a lot of checks and balances that were Kind of going into how this this plan was uh, set up. Now they're just trying to claw it back. Are they going to be successful? I don't know. I I know we you always hear stories of CRA like taking years and years with backlog to get through certain financial 
kind of inconsistencies or or, or uh, people claiming money that they shouldn't have been able to get. So I think this is going to be a story that we're going to be following for the next like four, five, six years at least as they try to kind of uncover and get the money back from people who've taken it that they shouldn't have. Grace Scofield, what do you think? Should the Canada Revenue Agency be doubling down its efforts to go after folks who illegally took some of this pandemic relief? I mean, absolutely. If it was done with intention mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. commit that fraud and they knew they could get away with it, like, we don't need this money, but we're going to take it anyway, absolutely. But I also think that there is a human interest point of view here where you have to think people were struggling. So if they took that money, they probably needed it. So I do think there needs to be some sort of, I guess, like strategy um, Mm -hmm. to get this money back in a way that still operates in the best interest of the general population. See, that's what absolutely they should crack down on it, but in a way that doesn't harm the people who took it. Yeah, I'm not saying the RCMP should be uh, busting people's doors down with uh, with machine guns <laughs> pointed at them. I think there needs to be certainly a Canadian element to this, which is some diplomacy on the front end. Hey, CRA here. You may have mistakenly applied for some of this money. We're not saying it all's to come back tomorrow, but let's try and arrange a little bit of a payment plan here to get yes. this money back in our pocket. Absolutely. And, and then again, as you say, maybe create some other opportunities for folks who were really, really struggling. Yep. Okay, what what is our what is our what is our way of dealing with this here? I will also go as far as to to say this. Um, this should have been something that was on CRAs, and this is what Karen Hogan's report said. This is something that should have been on the CRA's table from the second the government rolled this plan out. They should have known with no upfront verification there were going to be people abusing the system, and there should have been a small committee in place right away thinking about where we'd be here in late 2022 and thinking of ways in which we can start dealing with this issue as that time moved on. And I'll go one step further here. I'll go one step further here. I think that the CRA should also be taking a very close look at companies that used the wage subsidy, especially publicly traded companies that continued to pay dividends or record profits out to their shareholders, used the wage subsidy, and then promptly laid people off as soon as the wage subsidy came to an end and continued to pay out dividends. The wage subsidy was not supposed to be something used to pay out investors. It was supposed to be something to keep companies afloat. And this is something that I think the CRA needs to be looking at as well. And I didn't quite see that in Karen Hogan's report yesterday, probably because that's a little too uh, a little too political for the Auditor General to uh, focus in on. But I think we need to be taking a close look at that too. Who are some of these major companies that just took a bunch of government money and gave it to their shareholders rather than to the people who was meant to go to? Grace, I really appreciated your perspective on that one. We'll catch up with you a little bit later in the show but for now i want you to vote at accessible media inc on facebook accessible media on twitter and of course you can catch up with alex Smythe for the national weather updates here is your ami national weather report from environment canada we're starting off in st john's newfoundland where there's rain and fog throughout the day and the high is four degrees over to halifax nova scotia similar uh, conditions. It's rain throughout the day in a high of eight degrees. As we move on to Montreal, Quebec, same thing. Rain throughout the day. You're, you're getting the theme here out on the East Coast in a high of nine degrees. As we head over to Ontario and Ottawa, it's cloudy with a chance of rain in the morning and a fog advisory is in effect for the area. The high is four degrees. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of rain in the morning and the high is eight degrees. 
As we move on to Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's a mix of sun and clouds with a chance of snow in the morning. This is where the cold temperatures really start to come in. It's a high of minus 14, but feeling like minus 27. Over to Winnipeg, Manitoba. It's sunny with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus 20, but feeling with the wind chill like minus 42. So an extreme cold warning is in effect for the area. The cold weather continues as we move on to Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where it's a mix of sun and clouds, and there's more sun as the day goes on. The high is minus 14, but the wind chill makes it feel like minus 46 degrees this morning. So it's an extremely uh, cold day and extreme cold warning is in effect. Be sure to bundle up if you head outside. In Calgary, Alberta, it's sunny with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is one degree, but it feels like minus 24. In Edmonton, Alberta, there's two centimeters of snow expected to fall this morning, and then it'll turn to a mix of sun and clouds. The high is minus three, but with the wind chill, it'll be minus 21. Up in Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's a mix of sun and clouds with possible snow in the morning. The high is minus 31 with a wind chill of minus 46. And as we head over to Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of rain today and a high of five degrees. And finally, Victoria, BC, it's cloudy with possible rain throughout the day. There's wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and a wind, effect, a wind warning is in effect due to up to 90 kilometer per hour winds expected tonight. The high is six degrees today. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, Megan Gilmore will be here to talk about the federal government's hiring program for people with disabilities. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The federal government wants to increase the number of employees with disabilities who work for them. Megan Gilmore is here to talk about the experiences that some employees with disabilities have had in the public service. Hey, good morning, Megan. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm well, Megan. Let's start with the raw data. How many people sure. with disabilities currently work for the federal government? Sure. So I'm going to give that to you in terms of percentage of employees in the federal government. That's so fair. I spoke to Okay, so I spoke to Valentina Famigali, who is a director with the Public Service Commission of Canada, and she's really in charge of making sure that uh, the public service is um, inclusive, so of all equity-seeking groups, including people with disabilities. And she said that right now there are approximately 5.6% of federal government employees who have a disability, uh, but their goal is to get up to 9%. The methodology could get a little bit complicated here, but how do yes. they calculate the number? Okay, so for this purpose of this conversation, um, we're focusing on the self-declaration process, as they like to call it. So there are four main equity groups that the federal government um, needs to see represented in their workforce, and that would be women, um, Indigenous Canadians, uh, racialized individuals, and people with disabilities. 
when so somebody during... applies to a position so... uh, within the public service, uh, there is a form and the individual is asked to self-declare against one of the four employment equity groups, as I was mentioning earlier. So it's a simple question, but it's a simple question, but that provides us important information because throughout the, the, the hiring process, we can know uh, who have uh, self-declared persons with disability, who haven't. In some cases, there are positions that are specifically open to persons with disability. So from a recruitment perspective, it's important. And in other cases, we monitor that information because we want to see if there are any barriers throughout the, the staffing process. And when, at a certain point, maybe candidates have dropped out. Is it during the interview phase? Is it during the written exam? So those are all important pieces of information to us. Sorry, Megan, we had twitchy fingers there. There was more you wanted to add before we played the clip. That's okay. So that was Valentina, who um, is the director I spoke of. And as she mentioned in that clip, there's a self-declaration process, which is essentially a question, do you fit into the, one of these equity-seeking groups? So you check off all that apply. What's, in, what's important to note is that at that time in the interview process or the hiring process, you don't need to describe what your disability is. So, for example, I wouldn't need to say, hi, I'm legally blind. I would just say I need a disability accommodation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Megan, you spoke to some federal employees who have disabilities about their own experience. Who is Linda Muckelson? Sure. So, Linda is an admin assistant right now with the federal government, and she was hired through an internship program specifically designed for people with disabilities. Uh, that program, unfortunately, is ending. She was in the last cohort of it, but she's now on the admin team that admin that does that program and she was hired literally just before the pandemic started oh great timing great timing i know know something about that yeah a little bit just a little bit yeah so she has an acquired brain injury and um she talks about how like hard she has had to work just to get her brain and her body to work together again so it's something that she'll bring up in the in an interview it's a part of her identity but she'll talk about how like she may need an extra monitor or it's easier for her to work from home uh and she was hesitant at first to work for the federal government and she explained why you always think of the federal government as this big faceless organization and truthfully i I applied to the program, went in, told my, had told my employment specialist, don't want to work for the government. Mm-hmm. Had the opportunity for an interview. Um, she encouraged me to go, saying that it would be good practice. I went, and partway through the interview, I was so, so impressed with the people interviewing me. It was a fully accessible interview. Um, the people were... You know, they just really want the government to hi- to promote uh, the hiring of, of more people with disabilities because they understand it's a pretty untapped, pretty untapped um, talent pool. Megan, there's certainly a positive vibe there that comes from Linda. How has working for the federal government benefited her? Sure. So before she started working for the federal government, she had had part-time positions, mainly in uh, working in, in the disability sectors, so, um, helping support different individuals with different types of disabilities. Um, but here's how she explained why what she's learned at this job can help her elsewhere. 
before I, I worked for the government, I had worked for uh, part-time. I had part-time positions, and they were mostly within the community for people with disabilities. I did a lot of you know, support. I developed programs, supported programs, et cetera. But what I really needed to know was um, if I wanted to advocate for better for people with disabilities, I needed to ha know how to write better. I needed mm -hmm. to have more um, administrative skills to administrate the processes, to understand the processes, um, to track what I was doing. So I, I learned how to do all those. I learned to work in an environment that's across Canada. So we're talking different time zones. Mm -hmm. We're talking, um, I've, I've learned to use all kinds of different um, software. I, I knew how to use it, but not as thoroughly as I do now. And I think that makes me a huge, a huge, um, gives me a huge, huge potential for, for being a better support. Megan, beyond programs for professionals, there's also programs specifically for students with disabilities. What does it have on offer? Sure. So every year the government advertises uh, jobs specifically for students with disabilities. Uh, the positions are open year round, but the next big recruitment push is in January. So uh, starting in a few weeks, actually, uh, you can watch for that push for that. Um, and the length of time varies depending on the students and you know where they are in school, how long they have left to go. I think that I bring a very unique perspective to my team and I'm able to notice accessibility barriers and understand accessibility barriers that they wouldn't otherwise be able to know are there or be able to see them for what they are because I've been dealing with this since I was 10 years old. So I'm very well aware of how things work in the accessibility world and how things don't work and needs that need to be met and People on my team that don't have a disability otherwise would not be aware that these are issues and that they require a bit more attention. Megan, we've got very twitchy fingers today. That was Peyton Ruth, who's someone that you spoke to. Give us a little background on Peyton uh, before we talk about why Peyton may encourage other students to work for the federal government. Sure. So Peyton is a communication student at Carleton University, also the university I'm currently enrolled in. So go, go Ravens. Ravens. I know. Go. Yes. Yes. Anyways, another story for another time. Uh, so Peyton works with the Canada Revenue Agency as a communications officer. Uh, this is her second job with the government. She previously worked with Fisheries and Oceans Canada as a communication officer. But uh, the project that she's working on specifically is about making sure that forms from the CRA are accessible for individuals with disabilities that they that you can use your adaptive and assistive software you know when you're opening these forms all these types of things and as you heard in that clip it's something that she has a fair amount of personal experience with she's deaf in one ear hard of hearing in the other and she's also the only person with a disability on her team so when she talked about that unique perspective that she brings to the project uh, that's where a lot of it comes from 
Um, but in terms of why she'd encourage other students or recent grads to consider working for the federal government, she's from Ottawa, so she was familiar with the idea of working for the federal government. It wasn't really anything that she was hesitating uh, to do. But this is how she described the advantages of working for the feds. I think that people should really consider working for the public service and applying and not be fearful of disclosing their disability because your disability is something that actually makes you stand out from the crowd and is something that you should feel empowered by because it's like your your super tool that only you have and it allows you to bring a unique perspective to the workforce especially within the public service and there is so many different jobs that you're able to do and you will have all of the accommodation that you need. And that accommodation is something that perhaps not every other workplace can provide, but it's something that the public service really can. So Megan, when it comes to accommodation, we know that there can be different experiences for different people. Generally speaking, Mm -hmm. what is the experience when it comes to accommodation for people working in the federal government? Right. So both Linda and Peyton um, have had very positive experiences. Let's say like, like if they needed, like, let's say, a specific type of headphone or uh, like the headset, that type of thing, they've been able to get that pretty easily um, now that they're employees. But the, that's not true for everybody. So the government recently released the results of a survey that was done last year, so in 2021, about the experiences of workers with disabilities in the public sector. And they asked some questions about specifically what it was like to receive accommodations for disabilities during the interview process, um, either to get a job or perhaps in the promote, like you're interviewing for a promotion or you're doing a second language evaluation and assessment. And employees with disabilities were less likely to say uh, that virtual interviews allowed them to adequately demonstrate their skills. Um, And the survey also said that about 3.1% of employees um, asked for an accommodation during the staffing process or a second language evaluation. And of that number who asked for those accommodations, 81% of those who received accommodations said they were satisfied with them, but 66.8% of employees, so almost 67% of employees who asked for an accommodation said that they received it properly, which means that about like 43% didn't. So one third of individuals who requested an accommodation for a disability purpose during a a hiring process said that it it was not what they needed. And actually it's individuals with visual disabilities um, who were most likely to say that the accommodation did not suit their needs. Megan, so oftentimes in this segment, we're always looking at things from a policy perspective when it comes Mm -hmm. to disability, and typically federal policy is one of the areas where we'll focus. Yes. And I I, I think I kind of asked you this before, but I know you have more perspective on this. Given that, that lens that we usually use, why should people with disabilities consider working for the federal government? Right. So as you alluded here, like, um, to be frank, there are some disability policies um, at the federal government that are troublesome and many people with disabilities are critical of them. Uh, so I asked uh, Valentina from Agali, the, the director from the Public Service Commission of Canada that I mentioned earlier, uh, that question about why should people with disabilities consider working for the federal government when there's so many policies that are actually 
uh, you could argue, harmful for people with disabilities, and this was her response. There are for sure areas for improvements. There is definitely more to be done. So what I would say to people who are listening to us is apply. Apply to job opportunities and be part of the change. Be part of the public service that serve the, the Canadian population and help us improve those policies, those directives, uh, ensuring that our workplaces are truly uh, accessible. There is definitely more work uh, positive work that is being done in terms of uh, awareness, in terms of better understanding the needs of the uh, population that we serve. But is there more to be done? For sure. But without knowing uh, necessarily all the needs and all the nuances, we don't know what we don't know. So that's why I say it's certainly a work in progress. Megan, you live in Ottawa. I live in Ottawa. I knew a lot of people over the years who worked in the civil service and had a really positive experience while there, including the fact that it's a good employer with good benefits. So if somebody is listening, no, it's true. It's true. If, 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 If somebody is interested after this conversation today and knowing that the federal government has a commitment to this, where should they go to learn about opportunities with the feds? So it's canada.ca slash jobs. That'll be the main site. And there'll be different links uh, there to take you to specific programs. But it's canada.ca slash jobs. Megan, I've been doing this all week. It's our last on-air conversation with folks before we take a one-month hiatus, before a soft relaunch in January. Megan, I wanted to wish you and yours a happy holidays. And we'll talk to you off the air again in 2022. But we'll talk to you on the air again in 2023. Well, thank you, and happy holidays to everybody. It's been great uh, being with you this year. Thank you very much. That's Megan Gilmore, accessibility reporter and the host of Connecting Disability. You can find that podcast on the AMI Podcast Network. I saw one of our AMI audio producers, uh, Jacob Schmansky, kicking it around here earlier in the day. Is he still in the room with you, Grace? Yeah, I see Jacob. Jacob's right behind Grace. Jacob, hello. Thank you. You're doing excellent work over there on your end. Coming up next, Clover Thursday will tell you how you can be creative this holiday season when it comes to do-it-yourself gifts. No need to play the business minute, guys. We got to get to Clover after the break on Now with Dave Brown. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's a tradition unlike any other. Christmas is less than three weeks away, and I have not done a lick of shopping for gifts. But you know, shopping is not the only option. You can make gifts for people in your life. The holidays are actually a great way to be creative in your gift giving. So let's tug again at the thread of do-it-yourself with community artist Clover Thursday. Hey, good morning, Clover. Great to chat with you once again. Good morning, Dave. I'm glad to be here. So, Clover, what do you think? Does it mean more when you get a gift from someone that is homemade or do-it-yourself? You know, I think inherently it has, like, a bit more meaning. Like, definitely not to say don't buy gifts for anyone ever, but I think there's something when someone, like, spends the time and energy kind of creating something. And, like, usually the people who are making, you know, DIYs and things, they enjoy doing it, and that kind of joy kind of falls into the work. Um, And if you're nervous about, like, 
committing to making an entire gift to DIY or homemade, you can always incorporate it, you know, have something that's DIY along with something mm. else. Um, that might be a nice solution for people who are like, oh, I don't know if my like crochet skills or <laughs> things are um, up to snuff to be given as a gift. So, but I, I definitely always encourage people to have a little homemade touch in their stuff. Back when I was a broke student, as opposed to just being a broke adult, I uh, once made a radio play for my mom as a creative gift. So what are some of the gifts that you've been given or that you've given out that are homemade? First of all, that's super cute. <laughs> like, I, um, but I think some of the things that uh, pop up in my mind, I, I made, you know, custom stickers, like packs um, for my niece who just absolutely loves stickers and um, mermaids. So I like very specifically like, you know, found like design stuff that I knew she would really like and loved. And then I actually made um, a tattoo design for my brother. Oh, um, cool. Give it away. Yeah, I give it away that as a gift. Um, and that was something like, he already has like three, but like that one was more like, this is the tattoo that I designed and we're going to get together one day. So like, you know, and it was all done on a, a, a more firmer piece of paper. And I know it's framed in like his room and, and like eventually it'll be on our bodies when I finally just... <laughs> Not being a baby about it. <laughs> uh, Clover, not that we necessarily want to get into your personal wish list here, but let's say somebody in your life is creative or artistic. What kind of gifts could people give that actually might spur that creativity? I am always a big uh, believer in giving experiences when you can, you know, we mm. always have a lot of things, but, um, so I think like, you know, there's definitely like a lot of those things. Uh, you can find like Amazon. I don't know if I can say names. Yeah, um, yeah, but... Go ahead. No, no. We talk, we talk, we talk about the large retailer named after a river all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's certain things uh, you can you know, pick up like certain like starter packs or like, um, you know, kits and things like that. Um, you can always get like gift cards to like certain like hobby stores that you know someone might be interested in so they can kind of go and, you know, get started and find like supplies they're interested in without, you know, the, the barrier of spending their own money. Um, <laughs> or uh, one thing that I've, I've even been personally very interested in is the idea of like looking into, you know, sort of your local areas or even not local online and seeing, you know, different like where there's different classes or workshops and see if you can't, um, you know, you know, buy a lesson or like a, a, like a little session for someone just for them to try something out and try a new experience. Yeah, this this is obviously not DIY, but uh, last year for <laughs> Christmas, my sister and uh, my brother-in-law got me this great photograph of a metro station in Montreal, Lionel Gru. It's a station where we used to transfer all the time, and it was just a beautiful way of, of, of supporting a local photographer and giving me a gift that I was so delighted to hang on my wall, even though I, I can't hang it myself. I, I have no skills. Uh, amongst <laughs> many skills that I don't have clover, my biggest flaw as an adult is that I am terrible at wrapping gifts. It looks like a four-year-old wraps gifts when I wrap it. For someone like yourself who actually has creative talent, does gift wrapping present an opportunity this time of year? It does. Um, and as someone who doesn't necessarily have a talent for gift wrapping, you know, it's you come across a lot of um, interesting opportunities of how you can kind of present your gifts. I'm actually a big 
bag person, but also I really love doing like almost personalized gift baskets. Mm. So a lot of the times it's like, you know, you, you kind of buy like a, a more sturdier, reusable separate container. You can put all sorts of things and use different tissue papers and things to just decorate it and, you know, pick colors that people really like. And then they actually have some something sturdy to like hold all the stuff that you gave them in. So that's always something I really like to do. Um, yeah. And definitely like bags or gift bags are great. Like. It's it's a nice alternative for sure. It's a nice alternative. And they can be reused if you're uh, careful with them, which is also good. Uh, Clover, yep. sometimes showing people that you're thinking about them over the holidays doesn't actually require a full-blown present. What are your thoughts on sending out a card, whether that be physical or digital? I actually love the idea of sending cards. Like, um, especially if they're physical. Like, digital is also really great and also really accessible. So I definitely, you know, if you can't send out, especially this time of year, the postage is probably a little bit more jammed up. You know, a digital card is still very meaningful and wonderful if you have, like, a, a some, you know, some nice messaging to it. But I always enjoyed um, the idea of, like, just getting a surprise in the mail and then opening it up and then there's a card. I had a friend who... Uh, no matter where he was or who he was living with, um, he would always drag them out to like the closest mall to, you know, take the picture of the mall Santa and stuff and do the cheesy, like happy holidays card. So like the longest time every year I could expect this a really cheesy, like <laughs> ugly Christmas sweater, like card. And it was just, it's just like a bit of a highlight. So I, I'm always like love cards and I, I make them every kind of every year and kind of give them out to, um, you know, coworkers or, you know, people that I'm thinking about. So yeah, the power of the card. <laughs> Clover, we're always grateful for your insight on these topics. Thank you for always making me feel a little bit better about not being creative myself. I get a little more creative uh, through you via osmosis. All the best to you over the holiday season. Have a great time and uh, good luck mustering the courage to get that tattoo. Oh, thank you. Maybe this will be the year. <laughs> Maybe this will be the year. Hey, Clover, thank you. All the best. Thanks. Have a good one. That's Clover Thursday, community artist. Coming up after the break, Shani Saravana Muthu will tell you all about A Light at Night, the festival at Upper Canada Village. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's catch up with community reporter Shiny Saravanamuthu in Montreal, Quebec. Hey, good morning, Shiny. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. Always nice catching up with you. And Shiny, <laughs> you've been in the Christmas spirit for some time now. But let's go a much. <laughs> let's go a little bit west of Montreal and meet at Upper Canada Village, where they're yeah. going to be doing the Alight at Night Festival. So what can visitors experience if they head out into Morrisburg, Ontario? So I don't know if you, anyone here has gone to Upper Canada Village on a yes. regular basis, yes. but it's a beautiful place on its own. So just imagine all that with all the buildings and everything, and everything is just decked from top to bottom in lights in Christmas spirit and everything. They have little shops there with hot cocoa. They even have a beaver tail stand there. So you get to really embrace the light show. Um, it is uh, $15 uh, and the ticket has to be bought on their website and you can pick your time slot. And it roughly takes about 40 minutes for you to walk through the entire exhibit outside and see all the lights and see everything that you need to see. 
um, which is great. And the fact that you can be bought online, uh, it did start on December 1st. Um, it will go up until January 7th. So even if you're crazy busy during the holidays, you still have about a week in January that you could that you can head out there to see the the exhibit or the light show. There's um, even something about that week between Christmas and New Year's that actually presents some good opportunities to do some of that festive exactly. stuff when the crowds die down a little bit. Yeah, when you have kids at home and you don't know what to do, I'd say this is great. And uh, yeah, I think it's great. We were supposed to go last weekend on Saturday, but the, the show actually got canceled because of the high winds that we all experienced last weekend. Mm. Um, so now we're trying to figure out when we're going to go. Uh, I'm hoping it'll be between soon. <laughs> so we're just trying to figure out our schedule, but yeah. And they also have um, two different uh, dining options that they have there. One is at one of the hotels on location and another one is their Harvest Farm restaurant. And uh, the one at the hotel does um, have like a set menu and it's basically all your holiday trimmings that you could think about. Nice. Um, and then the other one is a bit more on the I guess, cheaper end of the menu. And you can, if your kids aren't into like the, the Christmas meal, you have your chicken fingers and hamburgers there also. So you have something to choose from and it's, it's fun. If you're someone that doesn't do holiday trimmings at home, maybe this is a great way for you to experience and, and try that out with your loved ones. Yeah, the Upper Canada Village is not far off the 401 in Morrisburg, mm -hmm. Ontario. Pretty easy to get to if you're in Ottawa, pretty yeah. easy to get to if you're in Montreal. I mean, you're in the yep. you're on the West Island. For you, Upper Canada Village is like 45 minutes away. I'm actually in Verjoy, so it's like uh, an hour. Yeah, so it's not even that far at all. Yeah. Yeah. Good good living. Look look yeah. look at look at me with look look at me with my Montreal take being like, oh, you're on the West Island. You're like, no, Dave, I'm in Vaudreuil. We don't even call ourselves <laughs> the West Island. We we're our own community. Uh I feel I feel island. corrected. Uh if you end up going to Upper Canada Village, don't sleep on bringing home some of their cheese. Of course, it is yes. a nineteenth century sort of reimagined or restored mm. or revitalized village and they do have yeah. farm animals on there and they do make yeah. they do make cheese in real time and their cheese is real good yeah yeah i went there when i was a kid i haven't been since i went on a field trip with school and i'm looking forward to going back and eating all their stuff again yeah <laughs> and the opportunity to, and oh my gosh the fresh bread oh ho, 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 yeah, boy that's why. oh my gosh all right i gotta stop talking about upper canada village because <laughs> i always gain weight when i go there and i get to pet cows if i get to pet yeah. cows and gain weight we call that a good day a light at night <laughs> it runs from now until the 7th at upper canada village for more information upper canada village.com and as shiny mentioned $15 online for a ticket, and the exhibit takes about 40 minutes of time. Okay, Shiny, from a light festival to a pop-up market, tis the season is what they call it in Montreal. It's taking place this weekend. What kind of products and crafts and fun stuff is going to be available at the market? Honestly, I find Christmas pop-up markets are the best way to shop for people because it's not like the big ticketed commercial items that you see everywhere and they're personalized items. And sometimes when you go to these pop-ups, they're actually making them at the booth as you're shopping, especially when they're selling like knit hats and all those things. They're actually knitting them as you can see as you're walking through. So it's kind of nice to see that. And like you get to support local businesses. So there'll be, um, there'll be bake shops. There'll be, you know, right now around the season, it's a great time to buy chocolate, hot chocolate bombs to kind of put them in stocking stuffers. So I'm planning to pick some of those up this weekend. Um, there's candle makers, there's uh, clothing companies, uh, there's everything that you can think of. And I think it's just a great way to kind of get something 
somewhat personalized in a sense because it's not something that you want ordered online and you're just like, okay, this is this is what's trending. This is you shopping at a local business and going through and thinking, oh, this reminds me of this person and something that you bought for someone. Now, this isn't just your average uh, Black Friday sale at a big box store. You can't just shove yeah. your way in. Not just anybody can stroll through. What should yeah. someone keep in mind before they visit? So uh, you do have to reserve your spot. It's a free event. Um, uh, so this is one of the free ones. Uh, you just have to reserve your spot through their Eventbrite website, uh, which I'm assuming we will provide. And just to reserve your spot, it is open from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, it is in Point Claire by the water. Um, that is the West they- Island. We can officially call that the West <laughs> Island. That's acceptable. And they also have a toy drive, so only new gifts. So if you do have anything that you do want to donate, you could bring a, a toy to donate at the same time. Um, so it's a great way. Uh, they have some fun activities for the kids too. So if you don't know what to do with your kids this uh, Sunday, bring them with you. <laughs> right on. Yeah, we we are going to share the event Brent link as well. Perfect. I'm not going to read the whole thing on air because no, I'm counting. <laughs> I'm counting about uh, ten dashes and about fifteen yeah. slashes and then about fourteen numbers at the end. Yeah, so, it's very long. <laughs> yeah, we'd we'd be we'd be here all day. Yeah. Uh, Shiny, how was the Santa Claus parade? Did you make it downtown in the end? So I made it downtown. Um, so we got there towards the end of the parade, but I did make it to the 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 the, the market, and they had like a really nice choir singing all the Christmas songs. It was really nice, honestly. And and I bought some candles that don't look like candles, so it's great. Um, yeah, it was great. And there was a lot of kids downtown, so it was really nice seeing a lot of people after like what two years. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was- I, I- Assuming you avoided it that weekend. Well, right? so I was I was staying downtown. I was staying yeah. about a block from where the parade started. So as I was walking around getting breakfast that morning, uh, the place was like downtown was jumping, Fast. and the and the yeah. police were blocking off all kinds of streets. There was Everything. no traffic, which was actually kind of lovely. It was kind of yeah. lovely the between Rene Levesque and Sherbrooke from basically well, was great. Yeah, yeah there from was like Guy like, to Saint Denis, yeah. there was like total pedestrian availability i mean for drivers that must have been a nightmare for me it was amazing exactly yeah well i'm glad you had fun well you know i i I can get into the spirit of the season when my when my arm is (laughs) twisted in the right direction Uh, i'm not shoving down your throat (laughs) (laughs) shiny it's not just you everybody's shoving it down my throat this week uh shiny all the best to you and the family over the holiday season i know you love it so much so enjoy it and uh, we'll talk to you again in 2023 Yes, of course. Take care. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. That's Shiny Saravanamuthu, community reporter in Montreal, Quebec. And again, for things like that Eventbrite link that is way too long to read on air, I just advise you to check out our blog after the show, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. Let's wrap up the hour with one news story. I didn't do too much of this in the run-up to the Georgia runoff in the U.S. Senate election, largely because a lot of the coverage is nonsense. But here is the news. Here are the facts. We just deal with the facts on Now with Dave Brown. Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock has defeated Republican challenger Herschel Walker in the runoff election in Georgia. Reporter Rena Roy is in Atlanta. The people have spoken. The results coming in after the general election in November, when Warnock beat Walker by under 1%, neither candidate meeting the 50% threshold required to win the ballot. Right now, I'll put my character against Raphael Warnock any day. My opponent says many things. You can't believe any of them. 
Walker facing a slew of allegations in recent months, including domestic abuse, lying about his resume, and his number of children. He's accused of paying for two women to have abortions, which he denies. The victory gives the Democrats an outright majority in the U.S. Senate with 51 elected senators. I want to share something that uh, one of our regulars wrote into the show yesterday, feedback at AMI.ca. Studio Brock wrote in. He said, I just wanted to write in and say that I'm going to miss the daily broadcasts. I listen to the show every day after work. And although I may not have been saying it through Twitter because I stopped using it again, I've been loving Comrade Brown's hot takes. Keep them coming. I'll miss the show. But I'm also excited to hear what's in store next year. And he says that he's also glad to see that Karen McGee won the last news quiz of the year. He says he always cheers for Karen, though that's the only time I play favorites with the AMI crew. So I do want to remind you what Studio Brock is referring to there is as of this Friday at the end of the show, we are going to be off the air for live shows through the rest of the year as we do some testing of a new control room and a new studio for me. So from this Friday onwards after 11 a.m. Eastern time, no more live Dave Brown until Monday, January the 9th. So a one-month hiatus here. We're still going to work hard, but no new content, no new podcasts until January the 9th of next year. Don't worry, we have not been canceled. Ellipses yet. Coming up after the break, I have the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. That's right. They hired me after they named the show. They really limited their options. It's Wednesday, December the 7th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller reflect on the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. They get the last word on reflecting on the IDPD. And then Kevin Shaw and I will... Walk through and talk through some potential tech trends for 2023, building off some tech trends from 2022. But before we get to any of that, let's get to the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, where Premier David Eby will announce a cabinet shuffle today. Since taking office last month, Eby has already announced more than $1 billion in initiatives, including funding for more police officers and health professionals, income relief measures, and the creation of a standalone Ministry of Housing, and did reverse course on a policy change involving individualized funding for children with autism in the province. So David Eby making his mark on the province and we'll get a cabinet shuffle coming your way a little bit later today. Of course, it's only 7 a.m. Eastern time in the province. So nobody's doing cabinet shuffles at 7 a.m. That'll come down a little bit later in the day. Over to the prairies. Alberta Justice Minister Tyler Shandro has introduced legislation that would arm security officers at the legislature. Brenda Melina Navidad has more. The sergeant at arms and the speaker of the Legislative Assembly reviewed security after the shooting on Parliament Hill in 2014 and a suicide at the Alberta Legislature in 2019. The review concluded members of the Legislative Assembly Security Service should be allowed to carry firearms in the Legislature building and surrounding area. 
The minister says the change has been a long time coming. It was one element of a new piece of legislation Alberta's United Conservative government introduced today. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. Over to Ontario, where Ontario's NDP will have a new leader. MPP Merritt Stiles was the only person to officially vie for leadership. Stiles says this is just one stop on her political journey. I'm excited because I think this is the important work that has to take place now, right? The real race. The real race is the race to defeat Doug Ford in 2026. The party still has to hold a confirmation vote before Stiles can be officially sworn in. And then over to the Atlantic provinces, Nova Scotia will fund an online mental health coaching program aimed at supporting people experiencing mild or moderate depression and anxiety. The online program is called Tranquility. It offers weekly one-on-one virtual coaching alongside cognitive behavioral therapy resources. Nova Scotia first partnered with Tranquility in March when it made services available to about 150 residents who were referred by a primary care provider. The program will now be available to all residents over the age of 16 without a referral. That's your look at the regional news. The Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem is making his announcement about the interest rates right now. I do not have that number at my fingertips. What we also don't have today is Brock Richardson. But nonetheless, I will endeavor solo into a sports chat. If you were paying close attention to this show yesterday during the sports chat, I told Brock Richardson, look out for something this afternoon in the Portugal-Switzerland game. Look for the benching of Portugal star Cristiano Ronaldo. There were mutterings of that early in the day yesterday and not long before the match started, it was indeed confirmed that Cristiano Ronaldo, the handsomest soccer player alive and at times talented who's really struggled this year in league play in England and has really struggled so far in this World Cup very much not a factor in Portugal's scoring and turning the ball over relentlessly was put on the bench and what happened after Mr. Ronaldo was sent to the bench to start the game his replacement Gonzo Ramos Scored three goals, had just a phenomenal game, bringing tons of energy off the wing and spurring Portugal to a monster win over Switzerland, putting six goals up. Now, Portugal has been putting the ball in the net the whole tournament. They were succeeding despite the struggles of Cristiano Ronaldo. And this was a situation where their coach made a big gamble because that's your star player. That is the hot sauce. That is the sandwich. That is everything that is Portuguese football for the better part of 20 years. This is one of the best players in the world. So to put them on the bench is a risky move. How is your team going to react? Well, it turns out the correct buttons were pressed as the team responded in a remarkable way to the point that I think that very possibly Portugal should be favored to win this whole tournament. The way they're scoring in the group stage and now in the knockout stage implies something, implies there's something tactically going right with that team. And here's the other thing. Making Cristiano Ronaldo a bench player is not the worst idea in the world for 
hardcore soccer fans, you may recall the way that Real Madrid of Spanish League fame won the Champions League a couple of years ago with just a monster stacked roster. And something they used to do was bring Gareth Bale, the striker from Wales, off the bench in the second half of games. And teams just could not handle that level of size and skill coming off with fresh legs in the second half. Cristiano Ronaldo's my age. I can like barely walk up the stairs without being winded or something feeling sore. Now, Cristiano Ronaldo is an Adonis who like runs 10 kilometers a day and does a million sit-ups and all the squats in the world. But nonetheless, Father Time is undefeated. To utilize Cristiano Ronaldo as a bench player could be something that ends up overwhelming other teams. That you're just bringing on this flash of energy and skill and ball handling ability that's going to put pressure on tired defenders. So this is not just a stroke of masterclass in terms of igniting your own offense. This could be something that Portugal uses to put pressure on teams that don't have the same depth as they do, specifically looking at their weekend matchup with Morocco. Although I think perhaps we've reached the point where it's time to stop underestimating the Moroccan squad who continue to play such sound defensive football that they're just frustrating the heck out of teams. But don't think about Cristiano Ronaldo as being punished on the bench. Think of this being as something that could really help Portugal flourish. Solo sports chat, little monologue. I thought that went pretty well. Let's bring in Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather updates. Here's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're starting off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there's a mix of sunny clouds and a high of four degrees. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's cloudy with a chance of rain and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high there is seven degrees. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's cloudy with rain starting in the morning and up to five millimeters expected. Also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and the high is eight degrees. In Quebec City, Quebec, there's heavy rain today with up to 25 millimeters expected. And a rainfall warning is in effect in the area. The high is six degrees. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of rain this morning and a high of eight degrees. Over to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's cloudy with possible freezing rain this morning, then snow starting in the afternoon with up to two centimeters expected. There's also wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour. The high is one degree, but it's feeling like minus 10. Over to Brandon, Manitoba, where it's sunny and the high of minus 18 degrees. But with that wind chill, it's feeling like minus 43 degrees. And an extreme cold warning is in effect for the area. And that cold warning extends to Regina, Saskatchewan, where it's sunny and have wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus 14, but it feels like minus 46. So bitterly, bitterly cold in the prairies. As we continue along over to Lethbridge, Alberta, it's getting a bit warmer. It's a mix of sun and clouds and it's clearing out in the afternoon with wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour. One is the high and a wind chill feeling like minus 11. Over to Red Deer, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow in the morning the high is minus 5, with a wind chill of minus 29. 
up to Whitehorse, Yukon. It's mainly clouded and up to two centimeters of snow is expected today. The high is minus six, but it's feeling like minus 16. And finally, we head over to BC. So Kelowna, BC first, it's cloudy and possible snow in the morning. And then it's gonna become a mix of sun and clouds later on in the day. The high is minus three with a wind chill of minus 11. And then finally in Vancouver, BC, it's cloudy with a chance of rain and a high of five degrees. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Alex, thank you very much for this, but I also need to offer you some thanks. As I was doing my monologue during the sports chat, you were able to relay some of the information to me about uh, the Bank of Canada interest rate. 50 basis points is uh, the increase they're putting to the key interest rate in Canada, or in plain English, 0.5%. I I actually don't know why we bother with basis points. Like, why can't we just speak to people in plain English? 0.5%. Well, it, it's one of those things that's just how they financially structure the the calculations of doing pay, uh, basis points instead of percentage points or decimal points. I I don't understand it. Clearly, it's something that uh, they have instituted. But yeah, this is another big raise. You know, some banks were, were looking and seeing that, okay, maybe it might have been uh, 0.25 or 25%, uh, a 25% of a point increase, but uh, it's it's more. It's 50 basis points, 0.5%, up to 4.25% uh, lending. So it's still going up. Yeah. You know, this is not as uh, uh, transitory as they once uh, uh, thought it was going to be. As soon as Australia raised their rate earlier this week, I think we had a strong sense that Canada was going to follow suit. But uh, nonetheless, this one's going to pinch a lot of people in the wrong way. Alex, thank you for this. You're welcome, Dave. That's Alex Smythe. He's at the AMI Weather Desk. Also at the AMI Breaking News Desk, sharing that information for me while I was talking to you. I can only do so many things at once. But coming up next, Kevin Shaw will walk through some of the potential tech trends of 2023, building on a busy year that was 2022, and we'll go to infinity and beyond. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's been a big year in technology. When has it not been a big year in technology? Some trends have taken shape in hardware and software, and there's also been a back and forth and some shakeups in mass media and the digital media world. So how will these emerging trends continue into 2023? Well, let's get some perspective with Kevin Shaw. Hey, good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good morning, Dave. Uh, Good to be here. Kevin, there's all kinds of places to begin, but why don't we begin in augmented and virtual reality? And let's begin on the hardware side, where Meta has already put out their new VR headset this year. Apple is expecting to launch some new augmented reality glasses. There are some early adopters to this tech, but how does availability and affordability of hardware play into the VR and AR master plan? Well, it's, I think it's going to be a lot like the rollout of, of HDTV or, you know, the first smartphones, right? Um, you know, the, co- the initial cost is going to be very high. Um, early adopters are going to, to jump on it because it's the latest and greatest thing. And, and people are going to, um, you know, want to take part in that. And as the cost drops, uh, it'll sort of level out. And I think more people will, will start to 
to jump on board, especially as they figure out what what the device can actually do. Yeah, along those lines, I know I'm 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 packaging AR and VR together, and I know true tech mm-hmm. heads would be mad at me for doing that. But what are <laughs> some of the use cases that tech companies are imagining for this AR technology? Well, it comes down to informatics, and informatics is just a, a fancy way of saying that they want to overlay extra information on top of. Uh, what's being seen by these uh, these AR cameras? So if you think of you know if you look at a building with uh, you know with these glasses on, it's going to tell you that um, you know this is a store. Here are their hours. These are the types of services, and there's a special on you know blue jeans. Um, you know if it's a person, it'll say hey you know this is so and so from uh, you know you met them at a party you know two years ago. And, you know, I think there's some applications for this in, in things like gaming. Uh, obviously, Pokemon Go, uh, you know, was a huge thing with people, mm-hmm. you know, walking around with their phones in their hands. Now you don't even have to do that. You just, um, you know, walk around with your, your AR glasses on and, and you can play Pokemon Go. Kevin, if my glasses could tell me that I met somebody previously and what their name is, that would solve me all <laughs> kinds of social embarrassment throughout my life. And that may not be specifically accessibility, but I could make a case for being legally blind on my end. That is accessibility. Sure. But, but what, oh, are totally. some, what are some of the prospects for accessibility in the emerging space? Uh, I definitely think that there's, um, there's a huge play in wayfinding and navigation. Um, I think everyone has sort of been sort of poking around this um, sort of killer app to to pull all this stuff together. Um, I actually think Apple is is going to do this because Apple is, um, you know, they they've got stuff on your wrist that can that can you know measure your gait, measure your stride. They have, um, you know, they're mapping park benches, they're mapping trees, they're mapping footpaths. So uh, all of this stuff is going to come together in these AR glasses uh, with a level of informatics that, that really hasn't been seen before. I think that's going to be their play next year. You mentioned that, that in some of these spaces, there's room for fun. Now, there's going to be some funding involved in some of these spaces as well. So Facebook, <laughs> a.k.a. Meta, is investing reportedly $200 billion to build its metaverse. To my mind, there really is something there, especially if there is widespread adoption of the tech, whether that be social Uh, I can see people like literally gathering in digital space bars as if it's a Zoom call, but it's more like a real-time experience. I can see how workplaces would like this. I can already tell you it's super fun for gaming. I tried my uncle's headset last year and played a boxing game where I was fighting an actual computer. It was like amazing. But in an era of rising interest rates, how risky is the strategy of committing that much cash on a gamble to build something new? Well, I mean, in my opinion, I think I think the metaverse is DOA. Um, you know, a lot of folks have, have reported that the that the graphics are you know sort of 1993, sort of 386 level graphics, and that uh, you know the the experience is not that immersive. Look, I've I've got friends who play, um, <laughs> you know, I've got friends who play uh, you know things like Second Life and you know vintage uh, you know uh, vintage console games. On on web browsers, and they say that the that the um, that the metaverse graphics are worse, but it's a, it's a huge gamble, right? Um, you know, is this going to be something that people are going to use, and are are people ultimately going to build applications for it? That's that's the real question.
Mm. Yeah, I mean, I know that was something that, that killed some video game systems in the late 90s and early 2000s, like Sega Genesis totally. or Sega. People were like, we're just not going to make games for you anymore. We don't want to make mm-hmm. games for you. Yeah. Uh, no, to, to sort of take the premise of my last question about borrowing costs, obviously we just had a press conference with Tiff Macklem a few minutes ago. Once again, mm-hmm. interest rates going up in Canada. They went up in Australia yep. yesterday. They're going to go up in the U.S. as well. What impact do you think the increased cost of borrowing might have on some other tech companies? Could this slow some innovation going into the next year? So I, I think that this is sort of a cyclical pattern. We were, I think we were in this pattern about 50 years ago, uh, there were record high interest rates at the end of the 70s. And really the innovation came from, you know, guys like Steve Jobs and, and, and Steve Wozniak tinkering in their garage and, and trying to build something that, you know, the behemoths and the powerhouses like, like IBM and HP couldn't build. Um, you know, they were, they were very much set in their ways. And I, I see that happening now with, with things like Amazon, Facebook, Apple, uh, definitely. You know, they're, they're sort of dripping out these these kind of incremental features. And, and what's really needed here is, you know, uh, some some guys and girls in a garage or, a, you know, a warehouse or a basement somewhere to um, to toy around with something and build something that that's completely new. Yeah, I, I think that's it, that it's going to be coming from a more grassroots perspective rather than necessarily mm-hmm. an initiative from a gargantuan company. I, there, there definitely is, is something there. Kevin, let's let's switch gears here a little bit because you and I have done yeah. a little bit of media criticism together on the show. And yeah. I'd be remiss if we didn't take a moment to talk about the media because it's been an odd year. There have been mergers and acquisitions. A streaming service like CNN Plus was launched and folded within weeks. Netflix stock price cattered, uh, cratered, cattered, cratered. Uh, Disney brought back their old CEO last week. And in general, mm-hmm. media consumption continues to be even more scattered. So what do you think of the media lens? landscape heading into 2023, whether that be on the digital side or the linear side? Well, you know, if you bought milk when CNN Plus launched, it was still good when it closed. <laughs> um, so here's what I think. I, I think we're, we're going to see the, 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 the end of an era or the death of an empire as, as one major mainstream media service closes next year and, and shutters. Um, CNN is talking about layoffs next year. A lot of these, uh, a lot of these companies are, are mainstream companies are, are really fighting to attract advertisers because everything has shifted online, and I think we're 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 getting set for the the takeover of online media. Um, you know, the tw- Twitter files has been a huge story, not just to to show that um, you know all of this stuff has been happening at Twitter, which is you know a whole separate conversation. But people are paying attention to what's happening online versus the mainstream uh, mainstream media. And, you know, the fact that the mainstream media is not doing a lot of coverage on the Twitter files, which are which are fascinating if you ever get to, to read them, um, really tells you that there's this big dichotomy between uh, what's happening in the mainstream versus what's happening in the digital world. Yeah, let's maybe just give people a, a bit of a snippet on what the Twitter files is. It's specifically about the way in which some information about uh, the Hunter Biden laptop story and um, some Richard picks to try and put it uh, yeah. delicately yeah, yeah. <laughs> were either being censored or removed or the process by which those decisions were being made inside Twitter. And that's a content moderation conversation that seems to be yeah. popping up over and over and over again in the social space, that they've become a platform that wasn't ready for that kind of content moderation. 
and and especially with with the hand of the government uh, directing a lot of that moderation, I, I think that's going to be the issue here that that people are going to uh, find most disturbing. Speaking of the government and social media, something that I'm keeping an eye on, Kevin, is the future of TikTok. Of course, it's a major player in the in the media in the social media space. Like we cannot dispute that it's become one of the most popular places. But we keep hearing these rumblings about American concerns over the Chinese ownership of the company. Sometimes yeah. I think the way politicians talk about it is more bluster than meaningful, especially because it seems politicians like to use China as a boogeyman anytime there's some major problem. But sure. in a space where social media and geopolitics keep intersecting, I can't help but think there might be some movement on the TikTok front. Do you have a feeling or an inkling of some of the back and forth on TikTok's future? It, it's really interesting because there are other players in the space. Um, obviously, Instagram has Reels. YouTube has launched Shorts. Um, you know, TikTok is, is in this... You know, is TikTok in the space where MySpace was back in 2003? Everybody's jumping on it. Um, you know, it, it seems to it seems to serve sort of one particular purpose. But uh, you know, Elon is talking about bringing back a Vine. Um, you know, for Twitter, and you know, is there is there is there a play there for Twitter to get back into the into the short video space? Mm. Um, it's really going to be interesting to see where TikTok goes. I have a I have a sense that that really they're sort of the MySpace of of this decade, and um, as long as something else comes along, whether whether it be Instagram Reels or or Vine, and and something can be created that's really viral that's going to uh, you know attract younger younger people. Um, you know, I I think TikTok's time is limited. Ah, oh, that swiping. TikTok, TikTok. Yeah, that's that swiping model is so convenient though. It's just like so easy just to roll uh, through. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, one last thread to tug at here. You sent me a note about the development of new magnetics or electrics that are loaded with mm -hmm. potential, and I had no idea what you were talking about. So make me a bit smarter. What do these developments have in store? So there's there's a guy I've, I've follow online is his name's Cliff High and he's he's talked about um, sort of this this trend that's coming up with new ways of generating, storing, and transmitting electricity. And and I, you know, because I'm a nerd, I, I follow this stuff online and I'm starting to see people uh, do things like, you know, they're they're pointing lasers at at LEDs and taking electricity out of the back end of the LED as opposed to the other way around. Um, you know, there's a guy out there who's created an antenna to actually pick up um, solar energy instead of using solar panels. And I think that a lot of this sort of tinkering and innovation is going to happen next year where, again, it's going to be, you know, just guys and girls in their basement, um, you know, either somewhere here in North America or somewhere else in the world, probably posting it up on TikTok to say, Hey, look what I can do! I can make uh, electricity by doing this, and um, you know that's really going to kind of shift the paradigm of like using huge power plants and you know wind farms and and solar panels to uh, to generate electricity. I, I think it's a really fascinating space to keep an eye on. Kevin. You joined the party late in the year this year in the Now with Dave Brown world, but we've been grateful for your perspective every time we chat. All the best to you and yours over the holiday season, and we'll uh, chat with you again in 2023. 
Merry Christmas and Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you very much, sir. That's Kevin Shaw. Coming up next, Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller will reflect on the International Day of Persons with Disabilities. They get the last word on the IDPD before we uh, shut that book until next November. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Let's put a bow on the conversation around International Day of Persons with Disabilities. The events are in the books. The announcements have been made. Let's reflect on the day and where we go from here. Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller are here to lend a hand with that. Hey, good morning, Marco. Good morning, Dave. And hello, Elizabeth. Good morning, Dave. Happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday to you, too. Elizabeth, let's start with you. Did you attend any events this weekend? I did. I was actually fortunate enough to attend two. So the first was actually on Thursday, so just prior to the day, and it was hosted by Toronto Metropolitan University, TMU, formerly Ryerson. And it was an event for employees with disabilities and really focused on, or the, or really, I guess, anybody that's interested in disability, and really focused on bringing the education standard to light through small group discussion. So we had some speakers to kind of kick things off. We used a really cool feature called Menti, which is accessible to put what does accessibility mean to us and inclusion mean to us into a little word cloud and then some speakers. And then there was a really cool opportunity to break into breakout rooms where we discussed the barriers to um, the barrier areas around the accessible education standard, which is here in Ontario. The second event, a little bit of a different horse, was an event I attended on Saturday the 3rd, so on the day itself, hosted by the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. And that was a really beautiful combination of poetry, speeches, art, and conversation. So we had uh, Michael Gottile, who was the first accessibility commissioner of, of Canada. I didn't actually know that. A really interesting uh, speaker who talked about iBug, which is a platform, might is not as scary as it sounds. It's a platform to help folks learn iOS devices. <laughs> Obviously, the Honorable David Lepofsky had to make an appearance. That It wouldn't be an event without David. We had a land acknowledgement, somebody who identifies as having sight loss. But I think really, for me, those events really spoke to this idea of coming together, moving forward, and rallying after a really tough two years. Mm. Mm -hmm. Marco, you're someone who, whenever I follow you on social media, whenever I check out what you've been up to on any given weekend, I'm exhausted. I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy's always out there. <laughs> I agree. What, what, what about so you? Busy. What about you? Did you attend any events over the weekend? So I didn't attend any official events for uh, International Day of Persons with Disabilities. I was actually in Whistler doing an accessibility assessment for a client uh, with my wife at the time. So technically, we were activating on our uh, skill sets and our services, uh, which was really great. Although on the actual day of, I did post a photo of me at a local brew pub where I was actually able to go and sit patio style um, on a picnic table that was accessible. And I wanted to 
really Come highlight on. and shout out um, that, that I was able to actually roll my wheelchair right underneath uh, the the picnic style uh, bench and actually you know feel like I was involved in the conversation with my wife. So we mm. we posted that photo of of me at that bench and it got a lot of attention. So I'm That's happy cool. to see that there's a lot of things and a lot of movement, a lot more attention coming to this day because that's exactly the direction we needed to go. Yeah, that's a, like an ex- a perfect example of progress, right? The things that we've been advocating for, the little things we've been advocating for for years that are the big things. And it's an example yeah. of action and a response to action and, and the outcomes of action. So Marco, staying with you, because as we talked about yeah. doing this topic last week, one of the things that you wanted to bat around was the significance of the day. So what do you believe the significance of December the 3rd is? Well, so I think that there's an incredible amount of significance to recognize our friends, family members, and loved ones who have both visible and invisible disabilities. That's all great. But I think that as uh, we've heard from Elizabeth, you know, these events are becoming more fulsome. They're becoming more intentional. Um, they're actually outlining things that we can do to create action immediately in our community. And I think that that is the significance. I think that um, a lot of events I used to attend maybe five to seven years ago, it was a bunch of empty platitudes. You know, it was like, okay, let's have a guest speaker come in, right? And, um, you know, they'll talk something, let's do a lunch and learn. And then, you know, the crowd is all rah, rah for about 15 minutes. And then they go, so what were we celebrating again, right? So I wanna <laughs> I wanna see a little difference here because I don't wanna just put a stamp or a ribbon on it and say, it's just another day of recognition. I actually want to see um, us be able to push things a little bit more forward. And we can talk about that a little later, but mm-hmm. I, I truly do feel like it is a significant day and it's up to us to make sure that we rally together to, to highlight that significance. Elizabeth, I heard some affirmations there along those lines, as you think about the importance of IDPD, where do you, where do you lend? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things that are really coming to my mind, and that is, although we are the largest minority group, sometimes it feels like our progress is the slowest. So there's like (laughs) presence and citizenship, and sometimes I feel like when I think about what it means to be included as a full citizen, the things, the policies, the processes, the employment rate, the the anti-poverty work that needs to be done, it's still not happening. So we're still not sort of moving towards that full Mm -hmm. citizenship piece, and I think that's a really big part of why I love ID, IDPD, I have to say that slowly. But I, I think too, what's concerning to me is that it's still not a day that a lot of folks outside of our community know about. So I think the raising That's awareness right. piece is really important. And I'm, I'm sure Marco, you can speak to this too. Again, you know, we think about 7 billion people on our planet and 15%, around 50% have a, a disability, but yet it's like, people say, what day was that? Oh, okay. And is that, you know, and so you're, then you're explaining. And I think the other piece that I, I really want to see, um, in addition to this moving forward, is really accountability. And what I mean by that is mm. bringing politicians to these events and saying, what will you yes. do? And asking those hard questions and not will you do, because then they can say, well, yes, of course, and walk away. But what will you do and how will you do it? And then following up, whether it's through social media, and I agree with Dave Markle, your social media is on fire. Uh, you know, well, <laughs> Whether No problem. Whether it's social media or going to your MPP or your MP's office, but really the yeah. accountability and the awareness and holding government to account. Elizabeth, I have bad news for you. According to the UN, Uh-oh. we're now past 8 billion people on the planet. So uh, we okay. are growing right. and growing and we're growing. growing. Okay. Uh, I, I, I think you're definitely onto something there, Elizabeth. And I do want to look to the future with you and Marco in a moment as well. But I maybe I'm just like one of these naturally cynical people that I now feel like there's 
too many awareness days that it's so yes. easy for things to get lost yep. in the shuffle. Like every single different disability has their own day. And then there's the general day yep. of a disability. Then there's yeah. hamburger day and cheeseburger day and pineapple <laughs> pizza day. And frankly, a lot of the food days are to me more interesting than a lot of like the awareness <laughs> event days. So I, I do feel like never black theme on hamburger day. Yeah, well, yeah, the, well I love hamburger day. Well, but it's the distinction that there's a cheeseburger day and a hamburger day. It's like let's get on board and get like one day, even for fear of our lactose intolerant friends. But I, but I do, but I do feel like that's maybe where this comes into. We say, oh, we want to get more awareness, but it's just so hard at this point when there's a bazillion different kinds of days that maybe it does become a little bit more of this internal dialogue that presents an op- an opportunity and platform. Because one of the things that we did early this week was talk about a couple of the announcements that companies and governments rolled out with, right? Governments would announce the next step of their uh, their disability action plan, or we'd get uh, companies talking about, Microsoft talking about some of the new accessibility uh, features available in Teams. So it sort of becomes a bit of a launching pad day rather than necessarily an awareness day. But Elizabeth said something there, Marco, in regards to accountability in terms of where we go from here. I would love to almost get into this habit of doing like an accessibility report card every December 3rd yeah. and saying, where are we it. at with the with the, the Accessible BC Act? Where are we with the, uh, the Accessibility Act in Ontario? Where are we with yep. the Accessible Canada Act? What do you think about some kind of report card being sort of the ed, like driving towards that on December the 3rd? Yeah, I, I mean, I personally, I think that that's a great idea. I think that a lot of organizations are already starting to do this. Uh, for example, you have certain cities that have to actually create accessibility teams now uh, moving forward in order to be um, compliant with the Accessible Canada Act moving forward. So they're starting to get those things together and really have to measure. Um, speaking of measure, uh, the... Um, um, accessible employers um, or the president's group that I was a consultant with, they actually have a pledge to measure now. So all organizations uh, who join uh, the president's group are encouraged and in fact uh, strongly encouraged to have a pledge to measure um, their inclusivity when it comes to persons with disabilities um, in the workplace and the individuals that they have. Um, uh, Elizabeth mentioned a stat about 15%. It's actually uh, by 2030, we're expected to have one in five Canadians um, identify as having a disability, both visible and invisible. So one in five is a very crazy number when you think about it. And as you say, it's the minority group that you can join at any time. So this is about impacting more than just ourselves, uh, Elizabeth and I and you, Dave. It's about everybody in our in our community, everybody in our country, everyone around the world who could join our community at any time. And we're just setting the groundwork to make sure that they have the equality and um, and the, the resources available to them when we're ready to move forward. And the only way we do that is by having some sort of accountability, some sort of report card to ensure that we're moving the track forward. Otherwise, how are we measuring mm. um, our success? Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to say that to make the world more accessible is to future-proof the world, I think would be an accurate statement. You're making the world more <laughs> inclusive for people Absolutely. who may not know they need it in this moment. Marco, I want to stay with you because I, I I was kind of a bad host there. I was ungracious. I asked you a very closed, my, a very closed question, but I want to give you the same opportunity on an open question. How would sure. you like to see the day grow from here? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of ways you can do it. As I said, I'm not about empty platitudes. I'm about action. I'm really excited to say that um, it was announced uh, uh, last week or, or maybe it was earlier this week that I'm uh, – 
I'm going to be on the uh, technical committee for accessible employment delivery for the whole entire province of BC, oh, right which, is, uh, which is which is which is amazing. So so with that in mind, if there's groups like that moving forward um, that are really going to help to push the needle, we got 15 individuals just on that committee alone who I know are change makers around the country and uh, in specifically in my province. And I really think that that is how we're going to see these things push forward. So for International Day of Persons with Disabilities, let's go to those types of groups. Let's see how they're doing. And let's make sure that it isn't just a rah-rah cheerleading event and we can actually support those companies to say, hey, listen, if you're not exactly where you want to be right now, how can we as a community band together to support you in helping you to reach your vision as opposed to feeling as though we're on opposite sides of the aisle where we're saying our needs aren't being met. Let's bring us into the fold and help you to meet those needs and help your organization to excel and individuals to excel as well, personally speaking, in sort of believing in themselves and pursuing any ventures that they feel may be worthwhile for them, uh, whether that's for their career or anything else. So that's how I would do it. Uh, Elizabeth, where would you like to see the, the day grow from here. I know I heard a lot of affirmations for you from the you there as we were yeah. talking, but where would you like to see it go from here? You know, I think when I think about disability, I think about how we're all a part of other communities and we're all a part of other identities that coil around each other. So I'd really like to see disability continue to grow into EDI work or now I'm hearing idea work. So I would, you know, people with disabilities are Indigenous or part of the LGBTQ2S plus community. And I, I really want to see when we're having those EDI conversations, accessibility and disability brought brought into the fore. As we, we know, 22% of Canadians live with a disability and many of those Canadians have other identities as well. And so I think that that's a really important piece, especially as we continue to move the, the needle on EDI work forward. Um, and, you know, this can include too, when we're looking at, Marco mentioned employment, when we're looking at companies, uh, do their EDI statements include disability? Are they accessible and easy to read? Are mm -hmm. companies providing applications that are navigable with a screen reader? Are they, is there statements on their website about employee resource groups for folks with disabilities? On and on and on. But really, I think that the piece for me that I'd like to see is just having our voice there at the table in EDI. So guys, not to take Elizabeth's incredible answer there and then end it with my own uh, personal cynicism. Do you guys want to... Which wanna... I'm sure is incredible too, Dave. Do you, guys, do you guys want to hear all the different things that December the 3rd represents? In terms of like awareness love, I days, I would love to hear it. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, me too. What food does December? Oh, <laughs> what there, food day? There, there's a lot here, guys. It's it's okay. International Bike Shop Day. It's Ooh, coats. I like biking. It's coats and toys for kids day. It's That's important. Nice. Got to be warm. Earmuffs, earmuffs day. <laughs> international. I don't need those as much. Uh, international <laughs> Spirit of Game Day. It's Let's oh. Hug Day. Make a Gift Day. Okay. National Apple Pie Day, National Green Bean Casserole Day, National Play Outside Day, National Rhubarb Vodka Day, National Roof Over Your Head Day, Shy Warm Recognition Day, I don't know what that is, and World Pear Day. So, yeah, to say there's a lot going on on December the 3rd that may take away focus from International Day of Persons with Disabilities is a bit of a tough one. It's an one. understatement. <laughs> 
Yeah, that and sounded a little bit things. like a Mad Lib list. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, of things you just insert in, in there and we see what happens. But I like hugs, so International I Hug like Day. Hugs, but how can we make all those things accessible? Back to my That's answer. Right. Exactly. Can we make all That's of those days accessible, right? That's how we do it. That's how we do it. Accessible <laughs> hugging. That's the thing we're going to figure out in this next round table. Elizabeth, Elizabeth, we're always grateful for your perspective. Thank you for this. It was great chatting with you today. Welcome. And Marco, congratulations on the announcement uh, you just broke for us on the oh. air. Congratulations on your continued success. I know 2022 was a big year for you. Here's hoping for an even bigger 2023. We're going to make it bigger together, Dave. That's so let's go. That's <laughs> what we do. That's Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller. Coming up after the break, I will let you know what's coming up on Kelly and Company today at 2 p.m. Eastern time. And a Canadian company has won an award for the best acoustic guitar in the world. So we'll uh, chop up some of that wood with Nazreen and Alex. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. No rumya today. That's okay. Kelly and company still coming your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Should be an interesting crew today as it is the AMI Christmas party going on in the building. So who knows who's going to be wandering here through Studio 5. Hopefully not knocking over my things or else I'll have to send a very snippy email later in the day. So coming up on the show today, Margaret Weldon will tell you about the Forgiveness Project, an initiative that aims to help both victims and perpetrators of crime rebuild their lives after trauma. Alberta has opened their first accessible outdoor rink, and it's grabbed a certified gold rating from the Rick Hansen Foundation. Jim Crisco has details on that one. And then this is the big one. This was great timing by the producers on Kelly and Company because certified financial planner Ryan Chin will share some tips on how to deal with inflation. Certainly we know a cost of living remains quite high, even though inflation has leveled off somewhat. Now we have, of course, the Bank of Canada once again raising their key interest rate this morning by half a percentage point. So definitely the impact on your personal finances are going to be felt everywhere, whether it's inflation or whether it's the man-made recession that is allegedly coming our way in 2023. Not to sound overly pessimistic. The good news is Kelly and Company comes your way 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio. Okay, let's bring in Alex and Nazreen. But before we say hello to them, let me set up the story that we're going to talk about. A guitar built by a company in Kamloops, British Columbia, has been named Acoustic Guitar of the Year by Musical Merchandise Review magazine. Mike Minimore, the owner of Riversong Guitars, says the win for their Pacific or the River Pacific model is a huge honor. For me, this award is, is not just a, an award for for Riversong Guitars or for Kamloops and Area or BC, it's it's an award for small town Canada that really puts puts us on the map. This is the first time a Canadian company has won this particular award for making acoustic guitars. And in case you were wondering, the 
Pacific River Model by Riversong Guitars, retailing for just under $1,400 U.S., so about $8 million Canadian once you factor in the exchange rates. <laughs> Nazreen, hello, good morning. Nice to talk to you. Good morning. Nazreen, how did you enjoy your time around the building yesterday? Love it. I've seen so many people today even, so I'm excited to meet the rest of the gang to put uh, names to faces. Yeah, I was going to say you liked your time here so much yesterday that you went all the way back to Guelph <laughs> and came back today to uh, revisit visit us once again. And Alex, we once again say hello to you. So Nazreen, you are a musician. You are a DJ. You're a very creative person. I don't know if you play acoustic guitar, but I'm curious if you're more likely to buy something, maybe a musical instrument or a turntable or a piano or a keyboard, if it has won some hardware, if it's won an award. So I used to play guitar, but for my turntable, for example, I don't buy these equipment based on awards. I buy them based on their reputation. Mm. So I look deep, deep in there because they're not cheap. So I don't want to get something that's um, going to crash in a year. You know what I mean? So this is going to last me a while. So I do end up looking at reviews, reputation, popular DJs, what they use, um, things like that, even mics. I mean, mics are really important. Hugely important. Yeah. So uh, I look based on their reviews and the their reputation, not based on awards. But would that fall into the same category? Well, sometimes reputation can lead to awards or awards can lead to reputation. But it sounds more like you're more interested in the experience of the yeah. user, more like a review-oriented shopping. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Alex, I don't, I don't know if you play any instruments. I don't know if you're a musically inclined person, mm-hmm. but are you more likely to buy something if it's won an award? Yeah, so uh, first off, I've, I've played guitar for many years. I've kind of gotten away from it in the last little while. I'd like to get back at some point. But uh, I, I have an acoustic guitar. I got an electric guitar. And in terms of actual musical instruments, as Nazreen talked about, I don't know if an award would certainly kind of uh, sway me one way or the other. I, I'm kind of similar. Like, for me, whenever I'm buying anything, I want to look up, okay, what is the best? What is the benchmark? What are some of the the best products of whatever item topic I'm I'm exploring. And I'm going to find out, okay, well, if this won awards, okay, why did this win an award? What features does it have? What makes it stand mm-hmm. above the others? And then you then you start to kind of go through, okay, well, this is what makes it so great. Okay, well, what's the price? Oh, can I afford this price? Uh, you know, for me, I couldn't afford a $1,400 US uh, acoustic guitar. I've got to go for something a bit more reasonable. But you start using kind of these award-winning products or, or kind of things that are at the top of the, the market and see, okay, why are they so good? And, and you go through, try to find some similarities in other products that maybe you know, oh, it has some of the features or, or it, it has some good uh, aspects to it. That's really where reviews and things like that play in that you can kind of match all the, as much as the interest and things that you want along with the price because that's really, to me, a bit of the selling point at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. I want to bring in Grace here because a question like this, it's fun because you get to learn something about the people in your life. And Grace, turns out you're a musician or at least someone who likes to play a little bit of music here and there. So first of all, what instrument? And are you someone who might spend a little more and buy something if it won an award? I play a couple instruments. I play the ukulele for fun most of the time. Uh, I have a very nice baritone ukulele and then a soprano ukulele, too. Uh, Also the clarinet from band in high school and a little bit of piano. But don't hold me to that because the skills are a little rusty. (laughs) (laughs) Skills are a little rusty. I think when it comes to awards, I 
I want to know who is giving the award. What are they doing with the instrument and deeming them acceptable for a reward or deserving of a reward? Ooh, I'd I much like rather go question to, in the methodology of this magazine. Yes, yeah, because I'd rather go to the reviews of people who are playing these instruments or using this technology and read what they have to say about it than use an award, like just um, kind of just go for using an award as to buy something because I don't think that that is really something that you can rely upon to spend so much money on something. Let's let's be clear about something. Online shopping has changed the way we, we buy a lot of products, but there are certain things like shoes and pants and musical instruments that really unless you put your hands on them or put them on you, it's hard to tell whether or not it's really appropriate. I think a lot of the moments of my youth that were poorly spent but so enjoyable was just hanging around Steve's music store in Montreal and playing different guitars and falling in love with one particular guitar and then spending years saving up the money to buy it because of the way I loved that it felt in my hand in the store. So Grace, I'm going to start with you and then run around the table with everybody. Can you even really buy a musical instrument until you've put your hands on it? During the pandemic, I bought one of my ukuleles online as like a leap of faith almost, just being like, oh, this should work. And it turned out really, really well for me. But one of my microphones that I bought online was not the same experience. Uh, there it is. So I think it, it is really just like a risk that you have to decide whether you're willing to take it or not. Nazreen, you got to be a little quick for me on this one, but can you even really buy an instrument until you've put your hands, eyes, and ears on it? I think it depends on the equipment. But for like a turntable for me, no, I have to put my hands on it. I have to visually see it, feel it, get the vibe. But for something like a mic, I'll look at the reviews, compare different mics, and then just buy the one that I think is good. I think that's tested out, and you can return it whenever. But, um, yeah. Alex, 20 seconds. Can you even buy an instrument until you've put your hands, eyes, and ears on it? No way. I, I need to make sure that uh, it, it feels good, it's built well, that the tuning stays and maintains as you're you're playing up and down. If it's a guitar, the neck of the guitar, making sure everything is as it's supposed to be because there are defects that can come up. Can my fat fingers fit on the frets? That's ultimately the question when I'm buying a guitar. That's all the time we have for the show today. Thank you for making time for us. We're off to the Christmas party, but we'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hadjar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.